Well, we're starting a new sermon series, and I'll get into what it is that we are going to be talking about over the next couple of months. But this series and the following series, although they'll have different titles, are going to be intimately connected and woven together with each other. But to ground us this morning in this new series that we've titled All Things New, which is a a familiar phrase that comes to us in the book of Revelation, where we have this vision of what it is that God is doing in the world. And, and God says, I'm going to make all things new. Uh, and we're going to be talking about over the next month what it is exactly that Jesus means, what God means, what, what John meant when he wrote in Revelation that, that God is making all things new. But to ground us this morning, we're going to be in a couple of different places. I'm going to read a couple lengthy passages of Scripture Uh, The reason why I do that, by the way, is one, we want to be the kinds of people who are familiar with this story and not just like take snippets of it here and there and be like, okay, there's my fortune cookie scripture for Sunday and it's going to be great. We want to inhabit this story. And I want you as a congregation and us as a congregation to have the attention span to attend to God's word at length. And so we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, this morning, and then we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want to join me there. If you have one of the Bibles in the chairs there, you could turn with me to Ezekiel 36 on page 898, and we'll read verses 22 through 28. But hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes these words. He says, so say to the people of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. Israel, I'm going to act, but not for your sake. If you ever thought that this was about you? Uh, it's not. God says, I'm going to act, but not for your sake. I will do something to help my holy name, which you have dishonored among the nations where you went. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been dishonored among the nations. You have dishonored it among these nations, but the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy before their eyes, says the Lord God. I will take you from the nations and gather you out of all the lands and bring you back into your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and your idols. Also, I will teach you to respect me completely and will put a new way of thinking inside of you. I will take out the stubborn hearts of stone from your bodies and I will give you obedient hearts of flesh. I will put my spirit inside you and help you live by my rules and carefully obey my laws. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. And our second text around us this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Paul writes these words, he says, the law that brought death was written in words on stone. It came with God's glory, which made Moses' face so bright that the Israelites could not continue to look at it, but that glory later disappeared. So surely the new way that brings the spirit has even more glory. If the law that judged people guilty of sin had glory, surely the new way that makes people right with God has much greater glory. That old law had glory, but it really loses its glory when it is compared to the much greater glory of this new way. If if that law which disappeared came with glory, then this new way which continues forever has much greater glory. We have this hope, so we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a covering over over his face so the Israelites would not see it. The glory was disappearing and Moses did not want them to see it end. 
But their minds were closed, and even today that same covering hides the meaning when they read that old agreement. That covering is taken away only through Christ. Even today, when they read the law of Moses, there is a covering over their minds. But when a person changes and follows the Lord, that covering is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Ah. Our faces then are not covered. We all show the Lord's glory, and we are being changed to be like him. This change in us brings ever greater glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, yesterday we had a birthday party for our two-year-old daughter. I should have put her picture up there because a service can always use a little bit more cuteness, right? Uh, You could check her out. She is two and she is all of two. But so two years ago we had Emma and several months after that, we didn't really share this. I haven't shared this with many people about six or seven months after Emma was born, Paige came to me one day. Sorry, I didn't tell you that I was going to share this story, but I'm sharing this story right now. And she came to me and she said, I think that I might be pregnant. And I thought, oh, what do you feel about that? And she was like, I do not want to be pregnant. And I was like, yeah, me either. Like, this is not good. She's caring for this newborn and we're nervous that maybe she's going to have to go through all of this physical changes that go on with having a baby and doing this whole thing. And so in front of Paige, I was very much like distressed and frustrated as she was. But in the privacy of my own thoughts, I was like, come on, let's go. Like, let's do number three, right? I was so excited at the prospect of having a third child. And no, this is not an announcement that we're pregnant. We are not pregnant and we're not having number three anytime soon. Can I get an amen? Amen, Paige, right? Never, never. But one of the things about having kids that I learned is that when it comes to loving your kids, this is not a zero-sum game. In marriage, this love that I have for my partner, for my spouse, it's a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. I'm all in with this one individual or I'm nothing at all. But when it comes to your kids, what you realize is it's not a zero-sum game. When we had Emma, it wasn't as if I had to have half as much love for Levi. It was like there's this weird thing that happens, right, in your heart where you just, your, your capacity to love increases. It's like if you think of the image of a balloon, like the balloon is always full, right? And you're like, ah, oh, this is a full balloon. And it, it, like when you have a kid, it's almost like blowing into the balloon. You're like, oh my gosh, this can become more full. And so whether we were going to have two kids or three kids, my capacity to love was not hindered at all. I would love three just as much as I would love two, but we are going to be stuck with two. Last Sunday at Easter, I had a lot of people come up to me after the service, right? And all throughout the week. They're like, Pastor, wasn't it so great the sanctuary was full? Wasn't it so good that there was like an energy and an enthusiasm on Sunday? And, and I think it was all meant and intended well. I love when the sanctuary is full. Don't get me wrong. I love being with a good crowd or so. There's a, an enthusiasm that only comes when you are with a, a big crowd. I notice every time I go to Dodgers Stadium, there's something about gathering with 56,000 other insane Dodgers fans that just brings out something in you. It is the only place that I've gone, Dodger Stadium, where 
we were, they were playing the Giants one year, and we had a very dramatic home run, like, late in the game. And I found myself in the eighth inning hugging this grown adult man that I had just met, like, previously earlier in the game. And I was like, let's go. And we're, like, screaming in each other's faces, just going nuts, right? Like, if it was just the two of us in the stadium, it would have been weird for us to embrace and to be that excited. But the crowd and the enthusiasm, the excitement just kind of generates this thing. And so, yes, I love when the sanctuary is full. We were reminded of how great crowds can be on Palm Sunday two Sundays ago, weren't we? What a coronation of Jesus heading into Jerusalem, how exciting. But this is the thing about crowds. By Good Friday, that same excitable crowd turns on Jesus. And then the question is like, would you like the crowd now? (laughs) You see... You already know this, but crowds, as it turns out, is not the goal of faith. The goal of what we're trying to do in our church and following Jesus is not to fill all the seats in the sanctuary. So crowds aren't the goal. The question is, what is the goal? And over the next couple of months, we're going to be going through a couple of series of of what is the telos, what is the goal, what is the ambition of our church in this particular moment of time? What is the trajectory? Where are we going? What's the point of all this? Why are we here a week after Easter? What are we doing? And so to ground us, we're going to go through this series, and it's almost like back to basics in some ways, that this is the activity of God, of what God is up to in the world. He is making all things new. He's making you new and your neighbors and our world and our church. And we're going to follow it up with a series that I'm calling Rebuilding Church because the truth of the matter is We are like so disoriented right now, right? We walk into the sanctuary, we're like, what the heck is going on? Where is everybody? What are we doing? How do we get this thing going again after two years of COVID? And we come into the sanctuary, and I come into the sanctuary every Sunday, and it's almost like we're walking around all of the elephants in the room. We're like, man, this feels really weird. This isn't the way that we're used to doing church. And there's almost like... I don't know if this is just a natural part of of being human, but there's these two books in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, that navigate these exact realities. What does it mean to rebuild a community of faith when it's just been completely decimated and we're confused as to where to go? And I want to do these two series for a couple of reasons. One I don't know if you've noticed, but there are some, maybe not today, but there's been some new people around the church, right? There was a the past few weeks, over the past couple of months, I'm like, there's kind of an odd number of people who have come to this church after I've been at this church, right? And, and I want to sort of lay out, this is what we're trying to do. This is what it means to be a part of the powerhouse church of the Nazarene. A second reason, though, is that we're in this really interesting cultural moment where faith and religion, worship attendance just declining, and it has to provoke within us thoughts about what does it mean for us to be the church in this new reality and world we can't be the kinds of people who are just trying to hold on to what was we have to step into what it is that God wants to do now part of this just to be completely honest is very personal to me I find myself in this moment in these weeks and I have these conversations with Paige pretty regularly I find myself straddled between these two worlds of who our church was and who our church is becoming. And I want to map out for us who it is that we ought to become. 
You see, we're in this moment where there's been so much disruption over the past couple of years, right? All of us, all of our lives in a variety of ways. We've been in this wilderness wandering, just circles it feels like in the desert, right? Like God's people like, where is this going to end? Can we go back to Egypt? I kind of want to go to the promised land, but that feels really good too. And the one gift that comes in moments of disorientation and disruption and conflict and even the divisiveness that we felt over the past couple of years is it can be a really clarifying moment for us. Really clarifying to determine, like, what is the most important thing that we need to do? What's the first step that we need to do as a church as we move forward? And so I want to invite you all who are here, not just to come over the next couple of months, just commit yourself to that, but to commit yourself to harassing everybody who's not here for the next couple of months. And to say, hey, we want to do this thing. Would you join us? And trying to figure out what does it mean for us to resettle ourselves in these moments. But the thing that must ground all of this is what we're going to talk about this morning. And I'm going to try my best to preach as fast as I can. Because we're going to go Genesis all the way through the New Testament. (laughs) So you're going to have to listen super fast for me. Because we're going to have to figure out how to do this. But I'm going to attempt to walk us through the entire scriptures, the entirety of that narrative to ground what it is that we're supposed to be doing here. And for those who are unaware, the most important thing about this morning's message is this singular word that I don't maybe use enough, but it's called holiness. And I want you to see how holiness or this idea of wholeness is really the movement of the whole of scriptures and it's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, moving in this direction. So, Let's start, all right? So the creation stories, this is how the scriptures start with these creation stories that many of us are familiar with. And one of the ways that we can read those stories is to read those Genesis texts in and of themselves. And just to take them at face value to say God created in these six days and he rested in the seventh day. And there's a lot of meaning that we can pull out of those stories if we just read them in and of themselves. But there's another way. What I would argue is almost a more important way to read our creation stories in the scriptures, and that is to read them within the context of their historical and cultural moment. If you were unaware, or some of you might already know, there's a lot of creation stories that come to us from ancient history. The Persians had one, the Babylonians had one, the Egyptians had one. There's a lot of different kinds of creation stories And without going into all of how those creation stories operated, I think we could generally think of the creation stories from ancient history as falling into two categories. One category we might call war narratives or violence narratives. And what these creation stories are doing, they're trying to give a description of like where creation came from. How did it all come about? And there's one really famous war narrative about creation known as the Enuma Elish. It's the Babylonian story about how the universe began and where everything came from. And in that story, the way that it works is that there's two gods and they're fighting and warring and there's conflict with each other. And one of them kills the other god and then takes that god's body and kind of creates the universe with that dead carcass. It's a way of saying, like, I'm con- right? It's a crazy story, right? But there's another category in which we might think of creation stories, and those we might call slave narratives. These are stories that describe 
the reason why people exist, the reason why society exists, is because the gods were really tired of doing all of their work. And so they created humans, they created people to do all of the work that they didn't want to do, to care for the earth and all these types of things. And so humanity exists as people who are supposed to be slaves to the gods. And a lot of you are looking at me like, I don't want to know about creation stories or ancient myths. Why are you preaching this? Because it matters how we think about creation and why things are here at all. Because how we think we got here will largely shape what we think life is all about. If you live into this reality of a war narrative or war creation story, is there's a sense that we are in inevitable conflict forever. That we're always going to be like conquering and fighting and that's just the way that the world is. It's the way the world has always been. And so we live into that narrative. Every time we, we believe that there's an us over here, over and against a them over there. And we happen to always be the good guys and they always happen to be the bad guys. And the goal of this story is to conquer all of the bad guys, right? Good thing we don't do this ever anywhere, right, in the world. But we live with this sense that it's conflict, it's conflict, and we have to win. This is a lot of ancient histories this way. And the truthfulness of this story was always revealed by, if you conquered these other people, obviously your God was more powerful than that God, and so you must, you must have the truth. Or if we live into this idea that, just this slave narrative, that this sense that there are some people in the world who are just a sort of step down maybe from the gods, who are kind of the middle management for the gods to take care of most of the rest of us poor working people. And we create these classes of people. And we begin to accept narratives that say, like, there's some people who are in charge, and they get a lot of benefit and resources. But most of us are here just to work and labor to benefit that upper class of people. But our creation story in the scriptures don't, doesn't work like these things at all. It doesn't fit into these two categories of conflict and slavery our creation story is not an act of a battle and it's not an act of the need for labor. Rather, our creation story in the scriptures is a story of divine love. It is out of the overflow of God's love. He wants to create an object that he can show his affection toward. And so we have this creation story that comes to us out of an act of grace and mercy and love. God creates all things and he created you out of that act of love. But there's that famous line, right, in the in the creation story where it says, so God created that the apex, the climax of all of creation. He says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. See, we, we were not meant to, to be God's warriors. We were not meant to be God's workers. We are set, humanity is set within creation to be his image bearers, to reflect back to God his glory and his love. To be a mirror, a reflection of God's nature in creation. And so we reflect God's love back to God. This is what we call love of God. But this fascinating thing, we're created male and female. We're, we're created in the midst of relationships and, and community. And we're supposed to reflect that love to one another. We reflect love to God and we reflect love to one another. This is our creation story. But we were also set within creation. We were not placed here in in God's world, 
to dominate it or to rule it or to use it for our own purposes and intentions, but, but we're supposed to have this care for creation. This is our story. And, and we get throughout the scriptures, maybe not in Genesis 1 and 2, this sense that we're also supposed to love ourselves a little bit. And how that frames all of our lives is that, that God's people, these image bearers of God, are to love God, love one another, love creation, and to love ourselves. That's why in the creation story, Adam and Eve, they're naked in the garden, right? Levi and Emma would love to live in Genesis 1 and 2 right now. Like before bath time is the craziest just nudity flying around in our living room and kitchen because they just want to be naked all of the time. And part of the reason why that's placed in there is like nudity was supposed to be uh, seen in the scriptures as as a symbol of shame. And to be naked and unashamed was to, to be okay with yourself. So love God, others, creation, and self. That's what the scriptures depict as the picture of holiness. If you do those things, that's what it means to be a holy people, a whole people, a peaceful people, a people of shalom. This is the way things are supposed to be. But the way that it's supposed to be isn't the way that it is, right? We all know this. We have people who are held captive to sin, we would say. It's like to their idolatry. They, they don't worship God first. They worship self first. And so we see in the scriptures this story where God's people are, are quite literally held in captivity, held in bondage in Egypt. Because there is some nation who believes that there are some people who need to do all the work. They need all the cheap labor they can get because these people are just supposed to be subservient to them. And we see in the story that that God is actually trying to bring about the redemption of people who are in bondage. You see, this this sin problem, this bondage issue isn't just about our individual issues. It's like the whole system, the whole of creation is held captive by this sin thing that we see in scriptures. And so we see God call people out of bondage and out of their captivity in Egypt. And God redeems them and he leads them into the wilderness where he's going to teach them a different way to be in the world. This is like the first two books of the Bible. You got Genesis now, you got Exodus. And the next three books of the scriptures, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are God trying to to teach and instruct God's people how to live as image bearers, because that's why they're here after all. And all throughout those texts, you see this one refrain that keeps coming back over and over again. A lot of it is in Leviticus, where God says to God's people, he says, be holy as I am holy. Be therefore holy because I am holy. Reflect my image back to me. You are supposed to be like me. And we see this, how it sort of fits in the law, right? There's these Ten Commandments that many of us are familiar with. And it shows us sort of like what it means to be holy. The first four are about our relationship to God, right? Have no other gods. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy and dwell with me. So you have the first four, love God. And the final six are about loving our neighbors. This is the whole of Jewish law is summarized in these two commandments. Love God, love people. Be an image bearer of God. See, and the goal of the law for God's people was to embody the story of God's love in the world, to bear witness to the goodness of God. And God's intention is that that if you embody this as my people, Israel, if you embody my image in the world, you will display my goodness and draw all the nations to you. 
that everybody else will look at all of the conflict, they'll look at all of the ways that we mistreat each other, they'll look at all of the bondage that exists in the world, and they will be compelled by the beauty and goodness of my love to live into a different story. This is the plan at least, right? <laughs> but it doesn't go that well. Like the rest of the, the Old Testament is kind of, yeah, that didn't really work out at all. <laughs> And it doesn't go that well, probably for at least a couple of reasons. One of the problems with God's plan and intention is us, right? We, as it turns out, are not that great at being faithful to God. We're constantly drawn to other ways of living, other gods that we might worship. But the other problem is the law that was given to them. See, for the law, it was written on stone tablets, it's very hard to put like stone tablets in your back pocket. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's like really difficult, like super hard, especially if it has a list of like items on it. It's like really hard to chisel and then carry those around with you. But more than being difficult to carry around, once a law is written down, it's really hard to move that thing to different places in different times. Let me give you an example. So like if you've ever traveled, right, around the world or whatever, You'll notice when you travel to different cultures and places, you'll step into those places and you'll be like, these people are super weird. Why do they do the things that they do? Why are guys holding hands over here as a symbol of friendship in certain cultures and countries? That's odd. And you know what? Every time that you have that experience, all of those people who are looking at you, they're like, well, you're weirder than us because you do a whole lot different things, right, than us. You see, there's this sense that Instead of the law bringing about holiness and wholeness to God's people, what it brought about was sort of frustration and trying to impose all of these rules and things that people needed to obey. And all it really ultimately did was just create more brokenness. So we have this text that comes to us in Ezekiel. We just skipped a bunch of books of the Bible. But we have this text in Ezekiel where in the midst of this story where God's people are failing to embody God's image in the world. The prophet Ezekiel realizes like, oh wait, hold on. God is not done with us yet. We're not just miserable failures that God is gonna cast off because of our lack of faithfulness. God hasn't give up, given up on the renewal of his people so that they can bear his image and holiness in the world. But here's what God has to do first. In order for God's people to be a holy people, as he is holy, to bear his image, Ezekiel tells us God has to do two things. First, God has to clean up his image. He has to clean up his reputation in the world. You caught it in there, right? Where God is like, I'm going to do something new in you, but it's not for your sake. It's for mine, right? Because you bear witness to me in the world. My reputation is contingent on you bearing my image in the world. For all of you who come to church every Sunday, which that's not all of us, it's me, it's, you know, probably you, you guys all get golden stickers for coming this Sunday after Easter, right? Is that you bear the name of Jesus. Everywhere you go, you come here, you sort of signed up for this. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. People look at you and they think, that's what God is like. And that's either compelling or it's repulsive. But you are made holy so that God's reputation and image can be known well in the world. But there's a second thing that Ezekiel says to us that God has to do. And he says, 
that God has to give you a new heart. He needs to take out like those stone tablets, your stone heart, and replace it with a new soft heart that is open to the will of God. And you need a new spirit. That Hebrew word in there, not that you want to know Hebrew, is the word ruach. It means like breath or spirit. It's the same word that's used when when God breathes life into Adam. God gave him his breath, gave him his spirit, because that is the only way that God's life can be born anew in us. And so we need this softened new heart. We need the life of God given by his spirit, by God's breath, and that will empower us to live the life that you were created to live. And this is what you need to bear God's image in the world. Fast forward to the Gospels. And John tells us in John's Gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, that God himself comes to us in the person of Jesus every Advent and Christmas season. If you want to know what it looks like to bear God's image in the world, look no further than Christ Jesus himself. Think of my kids all of the time, right? They are an image of Paige and I, mostly me, but sometimes of Paige as well, not just in their physical appearance, but by their personality and spirit, that you can see me in them, which, if you look closely enough, it's not all good. (laughs) Like, it's, ah, I'm ruining my kids, right? You all know that feeling. And Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come, follow me. And when Jesus calls disciples to come follow him, he's not saying like, hey, I know the secret way to Narnia, right? Like I know how how to get you into this heaven world and and you can sort of abandon like this world and get to the next one. It's a lot more magical and better. No, Jesus commands his disciples, says, follow me, follow me that you might bear the image of my father in the world. I'm showing you the way, how to do the thing that you were created to do a way to be empowered by God's spirit and life. See, it's not our work alone as we follow Jesus. It's a spirit forming Christ's likeness in us. And Paul, in the early church, fast forward, we're almost at the end of the scriptures. I know, the Bible's boring. But Paul and the early church begin to understand like, oh, the spirit of God is in us. We are this like new people because God sent his spirit at Pentecost to indwell us that actually transforms us. It makes us into something new, something that we haven't been before, but we were always created to be not just as individuals, but as a community of people that we call the church. And this new thing that we call church, it is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, but it transcends all of those divisions in the world. And as we embody this sense of love that we were created with, we begin to reflect God's goodness and love in the world. And collectively, we begin to reflect the love and image of Jesus as we are empowered by the spirits to be the church. Can I get just like one little amen? Amen. And this is really important because this is the whole point of church and faith. And where it's gone awry, I think, for us, I'm going to try and wrap it up in a few moments. I think there's a couple of reasons why we miss this and how we miss it. As the gospel goes out in the early church, it goes out to these Gentiles. Go with me here. I know this is a little philosophical, but it's important for us to understand this, okay? So just like focus for a second, and then you're going to go, ah, that's why that's important. 
So the gospel goes out to Gentiles who were predominantly sort of shaped by Greek culture. And in Greek culture, people thought of what it meant to be a person as like you're sort of comprised of two things, body and soul. And they thought like those are sort of mashed up together. But the body is really bad and the soul is really good. And so we have to sort of nurture and care for our souls. And so there's these Gentiles who are converting to the faith And they're telling Paul, like, I'm on board. Cleanse my soul. I want my soul to be good. And Paul's like, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Join our church thing. This is awesome. We'll baptize you and it'll be awesome. But Jewish people didn't think of the soul that way. They thought of people more as like, you are a soul. They didn't like sort of bifurcate these two things. But this sort of separation of body and soul led a lot of Christians to be like, Paul, like, I'm good. My soul is good. And then they would go about the rest of their week just doing profane, gross, sinful things with their body. (laughs) And they're like, it's okay. Like, my soul is good. Like, Jesus loves my soul. He's forgiven my sins. This is all good. And Paul, like, repeatedly all throughout, this is the whole, all of Paul's letters are basically this, like, no, that's not how that works. You can't separate those things out. Your body matters. The word became flesh. And you, as somebody who's following Jesus, are supposed to give all of yourself to him, not just your soul. And this sounds like this weird philosophical idea, but the way it manifests in our world today, this is why we have so many Sunday Christians and Monday through Saturday pagans. Because we're just like, oh, my soul's good, God is good. Now all week I'm going to do whatever I want because God doesn't really care about how I live because I believe all of the right things. This isn't what it was supposed to be. The whole goal is not just so that your soul is saved, so that you can be the kinds of people who in every arena of your life give it over to reflect the goodness and love of God everywhere. That's what we call holiness. And as Nazarenes, we gotta give an amen to holiness, right? Amen. But the second thing where this goes awry for a lot of us related to this one so we, we think that this whole thing is about getting to heaven. I remember as a teenager in youth ministry, I got you guys have to listen faster, okay? Oh, I'm like looking at my watch. You guys like keep up with me, okay? All right. So I remember as a teenager though in youth ministry, I felt like this was like the most important question I could ask my friends. It's like that, that sort of fateful question that always like generated all this anxiety and stress in me, right? Because I wanted to be a witness and like tell people about my faith. And it's always like, if you died tonight, are you confident in knowing where you would go? And I probably asked that question a couple times before it just felt so like awful. And I was like, I don't think I'm supposed to ask that question, right? But there's this, this sense that this all, all is about like what happens after life or after death, right? Like well, what is the afterlife like? And I want to say that that's not an unimportant question, right? We stand on this side of Easter, and it matters to us on this side of Easter that death doesn't have the final word in our lives, that God's goodness and grace and resurrecting power is at work in us even after death. We will not be separated from the love of God. Over these past two years, our minds have been about death constantly, right? It's not an unimportant question, but the gospel church is not centrally focused on how we get to heaven. The gospel's central question is, are you following Jesus? Are you being discipled to follow Jesus? 
John Wesley is like the forefather of this movement that we find ourselves in as a church, Wesleyan holiness movement. He began to look around, like in his church, he grew up in England, so he had a great accent, I'm sure. And he began to look around and he saw his churches full of people who were like, we're Christian because we're English, right? We're part of the Church of England. So we're just naturally Christian people. And Wesley began to look around and he's like, there's not an ounce of vital discipleship going on here at all. We need to focus in on what it means to be disciples of Jesus. I have to skip some things because it's getting so late. I'm sorry. See, one of the things I think that we've often missed as a church is that when we signed up for faith, we weren't just signing up to like check the box into heaven to get that ticket. We were signing up for this whole process of reforming and transforming our lives to look like Christ. June 5th, 2015, Paige and I stood at the altar. Some of our friends brought toasters, blenders, plates (laughs) to celebrate. And I said, I do, sort of. I was sort of crying the whole time, so it was more like, I do. Like I couldn't just quite get it out. Paige said, yeah, I'm down too. I want to hang out with you for the rest of my life. And we walked out of that chapel, Seacoast Grace Church in Seal Beach, California, Super married. We were as married as married could get. And then we had our first kid. And we were like, more married. We're like, whoa, I didn't, there's like a whole other level to this married thing. And now we have like our second kid and we're like, oh, we are more married. And we are, what is that, almost seven years in, in a couple of months. And I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm more married now than I was on my wedding day. And Midge is looking at me like, oh, trust me, there is more to be married, right? Those of you who've been married a long time, you realize that there is even more to be married to as the decades roll on. And that's what it's like when we follow Jesus. We didn't just go to the altar and just say, hey, like, I want to sign up to be on the team, and then that's it. No, you signed up for a whole process of relationship that we call discipleship. That's the whole point of all of this. I've had a lot of people, this is why I'm preaching this message and why I'm so animated right now. I've had a lot of people over the past year say to me, Pastor, and I'm landing the plane here, I promise, Pastor, I just, I don't know what we're doing here at church anymore. I don't know why I'm showing up. What's the point? I might as well just not show up. And it hurts, I'll be honest, every time. And for the ways that I haven't been clear enough about what we're doing here, this is what we're doing here. We're trying to become the kinds of people who bear the image of God in the world. And it's super messy. And it demands a lot of people who want to follow Jesus to be committed in going with him. We are, I am not interested in a church where it's just like, come on Sunday morning, sing a few songs, and we're out of here. What I'm calling you to, what the scriptures call us to, is a radical commitment to Jesus that is about reflecting the love and goodness of God in the world, and it demands a whole lot of change from us in really uncomfortable places. And the whole thing 
that we're trying to do is to get you to look like the love of God in the world. And it sounds so simple and it sounds so easy, but it's so stinking hard because it encompasses all of our lives. I don't care how many people sit in the building at Easter. That's not the point. The point is for you to look like Jesus. That's the compelling vision. It's Christ. It's Christ. To give yourself to Christ. That he might give you new life and a new heart. And by his spirit, we will reveal the love of God in the world. Amen? So come back. I got, I got many more weeks in this series to go. 